0: Well, good morning. You can keep your Bibles right where they're at. Uh, and what, a, what an interesting passage, right? I was snickering back there. I studied it all week and I just thought, this is going to be an interesting one to teach through. There's some crazy stuff happening. This will be our text for the morning, uh, 22, 22 through 30. So if you're there, just keep yourself there. Paul had, uh, in the last week we found that Paul had been nearly torn in two. Uh, by angry and violent Jews. Uh, he was at the inner court of the temple and then got drugged to the outer court of the temple. He was in Jerusalem, you know, he was uh, doing some ministry there and finishing up his third missionary journey with a couple of last things he had to do. And of course, the Jews in the area, uh, there were some Jews in the area that, that or had come down from Ephesus and uh, they'd been enemies of Paul since... They crossed paths with Paul, and so, anyways, they came down and started a bunch of trouble. And here he is getting the snot beat out of him at the outer court of the temple, almost killed. And uh, the Roman tribune found that the whole city—he had a re- report come to him that the whole city was in outrage, and uh, there was a riot, and that the temple courts were just exploding over this one guy. And so he uh, removed; he intervened and removed Paul from. Uh, from the tumult, if you will. And while ascending the steps into the Tower of Antonia, which was this fortress that was attached to like one corner of the temple on the outer courts, it's where the Roman sort of headquarter was. And it's amazing that they had, you know, a battalion inside this thing that was connected to the temple because if there was going to be a problem in Jerusalem, it would take place at the temple. That would be the epicenter for some sort of a religious explosion or revolt, if you will. Man, your baby, is she hungry? She's mad, huh? Well, just wait till she gets about halfway through the sermon. She'll be even more angry. So, it's all right. It's all right, kids. Both of them are just swinging and rocking. Oh, that's mom. Never mind. So, anyway, so Paul's being taken, literally, he's like, Shackled and taken up these steps, and, and he asks the tribune if he can say something to the crowd. And uh, he gives uh, what we would call his first defense speech. And, uh, you know, he's defending who he is, and uh, I don't think so much as to preserve his life, but just to preserve the gospel. And so, you know, he, he, he gives this amazing speech, he starts to at least before all of these angry, riotous people, and the speech was in the form of his testimony. And he just kind of nailed down several things about himself. And, uh, and so that's pretty much where we left off last week and the week before. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at what happened next. I think it'd be befitting to uh, pray one more time, and we'll get into this puppy. We're going to pick up at verse 22 after I pray. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you would... Um, that your presence would be known here, in this place, this morning, and I know where the word is proclaimed. You are at. It is you that is speaking. Um, I pray that it would never be me. That you would be speaking directly to your people and to those uh, who have yet to become your people. And uh, and so, Lord, just speak to us this morning. Um, make Jesus clear. To us, Since he is the culmination of all scripture and prophecy, he is the point. And so just reveal him to us this morning. And and I'm excited about how you'll do that. And so may we uh, just give you our attention, um, our ears, our eyes, our hearts. Just open us to you this morning, Lord, and teach us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's get rocking. Look at uh, 22. 22 verse 22. Up to this word. So Paul is basically still speaking. He's he's still sharing his testimony. He's still sort of preaching a kind of testimony slash historical lesson, where he's been, what he's been doing. He's in the middle of this thing, if you will. So that's the context. He's on the steps, and he's talking. He's still talking. And then it says in 22, up to this word they listened to him, referring to the crowd. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. Notice the exclamation point. These guys are ticked again. It's like they quieted down while he was speaking and while he was sharing his testimony, but he said something that that caused them to fire back up. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So up to a certain point, Paul held his audience's attention, right? Right? He was speaking. He was sharing. Hey, I was on the Damascus Road. I was, in, you know, enveloped by a bright light. The Lord Jesus spoke to me. I was blinded, you know, and blah blah blah. He's he's saying these things. He's sharing his testimony. He's sharing his experience, and then up to a point, that was it. They cut him off. Now, he said something though in the midst of all that he said that triggered this. Uh, he he you know there was something in particular that he said that that caused this it was almost like a last straw kind of situation and and the thing that triggered these people doesn't seem like the kind of thing that would trigger these people isn't that funny how that works you can say a whole bunch of stuff that you think is meaningful that's impactful that's powerful and 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 you know people like and then you say something that's, that, that doesn't, you feel, have the impact or what have you, and then all of a sudden, ah, you know, it just causes them to explode. That's what took place here. Now, you would think that the interrupt point would have been all the chatter about this Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road, right? If there were ever a place during this speech, if you go back and read it, that would be the place that would cause these people to become enraged. That would cause them to intervene. That would cause them to raise their voices and say, this guy shouldn't be breathing. You would think that that little bit of information about his encounter with the Lord Jesus would have been the trigger point. Why? Because the Jews hated Jesus. They despised Jesus. They rejected Jesus. They murdered Jesus, right? So when you said Jesus in this culture, especially at the religious headquarters, that caused all hell to break loose, but not in this speech. And if you kind of track back a little bit, you'll see that at least on two occasions, the Jews warned the apostles never to speak about Jesus again. Acts 4.18, Acts 5.40. There's two things that we see there where it's like, don't hey, don't talk about Jesus in Jerusalem. Don't talk about him anywhere. And yet, and all the warning, and and he goes on about the righteous one, he calls Jesus the righteous one, the risen Lord, essentially. All that mentioning of those things, of the Lord Jesus, isn't what triggered them. Now, I'm not suggesting that they were okay with his talk about Jesus. Because they were not. By no means. What I'm saying is that he said something in his speech That was far more disturbing than anything else. What was it? What did he say to cause them to go back to the same mode they were in before he started speaking? They probably listened to the guy for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And then all of a sudden they explode. So what was it? It was the last thing he said before the explosion, right? When he cited the words of Jesus in verse 21. Right? The last verse before we get into this section. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That is the thing that caused them to explode and to reignite, to cause the ember to flare back up and bring fire and fury. Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, the inference that his hearers drew from this statement was that he had been sent. As a representative for the so-called Messiah of Israel, right? Jesus is Israel's Messiah, but not in the Jews' mind at this point. They're thinking, well, he's a false Messiah. So the inference is is that, wait, you're telling us that Israel's Messiah sent you, of all people, to Gentiles, to non-Jews, to proclaim the gospel? That he sent you as a representative of what he taught and said, that false garbage, instead of as a representative. If you were to go to Gentiles at all as a Jewish rabbi, you're going to preach the gospel to them and not Judaism? You're going to gain, you're not going to gain Jewish proselytes, but to convert Gentiles to Christians? You see, this statement, what they drew from what Paul was saying, was completely asinine to them. It was not only asinine, but it was heretical, it was apostate, and it was blasphemous for at least four reasons. Number one, we covered it. They did not believe that Jesus was Israel's Messiah. Secondly, they believed Gentiles were tainted and unclean. You don't go as a Jew to minister to Gentiles. They're dogs. They're dirty. They're unclean. They're pagan. Thirdly, they obviously did not believe that the gospel was truth because that's what Paul had been sent to proclaim to Gentiles was the gospel, the good news about Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, which was easily, Jews call today, the most heretical message to ever attack Judaism. That's what they call it today. Never before in Israel's history has one done more damage to the, call, uh, to the cause of Judaism than Jesus. That's what Jews will tell you today, Orthodox Jews. Jesus has caused more damage to the truth than any false prophet in our history as a nation, as a people, as a religion. That's how they feel about Jesus. So they do not believe the good news about Jesus is good news. And fourthly, obvious, they believe Judaism was the only true religion. You see, in their minds, Israel's Messiah would never Ever send a Jewish representative into Gentile territories to proclaim something if they went at all something other than Judaism something other than the law of Moses never this would be preposterous outlandish it would be inconceivable you ever see the princess bride inconceivable right yeah, throw that in there I love that movie This is just insane. What they just heard is like, are you mad? Are you absolutely crazy? Is your screw loose? And here's what's really, 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 really tragic about this particular text. This verse, their explosion in light of what Paul said, there is a racial connotation here, man. This is straight racism. Unbelievable. Racism is on display in the text. The racism of the Jews at the temple towards the Gentiles of faraway lands. The Jews believed that Gentiles were inferior to them in every way. Even subhuman. As I alluded to earlier, they often referred to them as dogs. Mark 7, 28, Matthew 15, 27, even the dogs take up the scraps that fall from the table, the Syrophoenician woman said. Dogs, woof, bow wow, scooby-doo. Me and you, scooby-doo. We're Gentiles, aren't we? So the Jews may have been guided by their zeal for God to a degree, right? Because we read about that last week. They were zealous for God. They were part, of, part of this whole attitude towards Paul and the, and the rebellion and the outrage was that they were zealous for the law of God in a sense. So they were guided by some zeal, but verse 22 also shows that they were guarded or guided by racism and bigotry because they absolutely despised Gentiles. They're subhuman, they're inferior. They treated them as badly, if not worse, than we treated slaves not long ago. This is a terrible, terrible thing from the text. This attitude towards these inferior people. And now you can begin to see in your mind's eye just how serious this was for these Jews towards Paul. You're telling us that you were sent by our Messiah to minister to those dogs? How dare you say such a thing? How dare you imply such a thing, you blasphemer? And of course, filled with zeal and rage, they raised their voices in protest against Paul. Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. They returned back to what they were saying before he gave his testimony. They were calling for his death. They'd done that back in 21, verse 36. And raise their voices. You see that right there? Halfway point in the verse, 22, about halfway through 22. Raise their voices literally means screaming at the top of their lungs. This isn't just going from, hey, this is a bad idea to, hey, this is a bad idea. This is absolute screaming and yelling and screaming at the top of their lungs in total and absolute just rage screaming take this guy away kill this guy get rid of this guy I mean they're yelling at the top of their lungs kind of like how I do when I preach now look at verse 23 it says and as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air okay screaming at the top of their lungs wasn't the only thing they did they also responded visually right They were yelling verbally, they responded, but they were also doing things with their hands and with their bodies. Two details there. They threw off their cloaks. The throwing off of one's cloak was a gesture of protest and indignation, similar to the gesture of shaking the dust off one's feet, which we read read about in Scripture here and there. In Acts 7.58, we read that the Jews removed their cloaks before stoning Stephen to death. Oh, there's a connection. What are they preparing for here? I think they were likely preparing to do the same thing to Paul. They were trying to kill him before the tribune intervened. Apparently, they still had their cloaks on. Now they took their cloaks off. They got real serious. Certainly hope they had stuff on under those cloaks. Like big toga party in the outer court of the temple. That would have been just awkward. These cultural things are awkward and weird, right? You start taking your clothes off when you want to fight. I see this on cops all the time. Guy takes his shirt off. Why does he think he's tougher with his shirt off? Usually, when the shirt's off, the guy gets knocked out. What else did they do? They didn't just remove their cloaks. Ah! They flung dust into the air. The fling of, flinging of dust into the air was a sign of grieving at what has been said. suggesting that they had heard something that was blasphemous as they flung you know they took their cloaks off and as they flung dust into the air they would have been flapping their hands around in disgust as if they were trying to block the words they were hearing with their hands you know when somebody says something to you and you give them the hand right women do this men don't say hold on pal that's just weird Women are like, no, you didn't. And then this person on this side goes, or no, you didn't to me, right? They were kind of doing that no, you didn't say that kind of thing is what was happening. Pretty intense moment here. Two things. They threw off their cloaks and they flung dust in the air, waving around, yelling and screaming, make it stop, you know, like, la, 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 la. That's what they were doing. I don't want to hear it anymore. I can't hear you. I'm a robot, you know. Now look at verse 24. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging. Paul's translation said scourging. I like flogging better. That's what the ESV says. Examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Okay, so the tribune is close to Paul, and now that the crowd has exploded again, and now they're getting physical again, they were already beating Paul, now they've torn off their cloaks, and now they're flinging dust all over, screaming at the top of their lungs, what does the tribune have to do? He has to intervene again. Obviously, Paul, this speech isn't going very well for you, pretty much like my first sermon I preached. He has to take Paul out of the situation to defuse it and bring him into the barracks. And the thing that's interesting is that the tribune still wasn't sure as to what Paul had done. It would appear that he was not only, uh, that he was not only unable to understand Paul's speech, but that, that he also didn't have a Hebrew translator there. The tribune spoke Greek. And so he very likely listened to Paul talk for 20 or 30 minutes or however long it was but he didn't understand a lick of what he was saying and that he also didn't have a translator there because if he would have heard what paul was saying he probably would have came to the conclusion that i don't think this guy's done anything wrong but he doesn't reach that conclusion here he still doesn't know what's going on he just knows he's got to get paul out of there before it gets worse and in some ways the verse kind of implies that he wanted to take paul out of that situation to do what to beat the truth out of him. i got to get him out of here. He's done something. Look at these people. I have no idea what he just said, but he's guilty of something. Look at all these people. There's no way he couldn't have done nothing. Look at how these people are outraged. If he's not going to reveal what happened, because Paul spoke Greek as well, then we're going to have to beat it out of him. We're going to have to coerce him. We're going to have to put the whip on him. And the torture method used to extract the information, according to the text, was flogging, a.k.a. scourging. Flogging is a type of whipping where a flagellum is used. A flagellum is a wood handle with leather thongs dangling off one end that are tipped with bits of metal and bone. We refer to the flagellum as a cat of nine tails. You've heard of this weapon, maybe, or this torture device? Those who were beaten with a phlegalum usually died from blood loss or ended up permanently disfigured or disabled. What a a torture method, right? If you don't bring the person that you're trying to get the information to, to death, you bring them to the point of death. And hopefully they'll have just enough energy left over to say, I did it. Or, I didn't do it. Can I have my rib back? This was a nasty, terrible, terrible device. Our whole nation exploded over, over waterboarding, pouring water over someone's face, trying to extract secrets. Boy, if we did this, I can't imagine what would have happened if we just whipped terrorists with this until they spoke. This was a brutal tactic the mere threat of the flagellum would cause people to quiver and to spill the beans. Oh, you want the flagellum? By the way, I was at AMPM that night at midnight. I did it. I robbed them at gunpoint. I shot it, you know. They would just speak because it's like, I, I don't want to get whipped with that thing. Of course, then they'd be crucified. I guess it's better to be crucified without having your whole body filleted open. Maybe you live an extra day blowing at insects and crows. Get off me. <laughs> Because you don't have arms to defend yourself? You ever done that with a bee? (laughs) Right? Something comes in. You're like. (laughs) I think we've all done that. Paul would have been taken at this point. He would have been taken directly out of the tumult. To a particular locale for this to be done. And it's called the Gabbatha the Gabatha was a large stone pavement courtyard at the center of the Tower of Antonia. It was the place where the Romans interrogated and punished people via whipping. It had like a large stone out in the middle of it or a pole that they would strap people to. Now look at 25 through 26. But when they had stretched Paul out for the whips... He said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. Okay, so they took Paul and they stretched his arms out around a large pole. Or over a large stone to fully expose his back and to pull his skin tight so that each lash would inflict maximum damage. Have you seen the movie The Passion of the Christ? Do you remember that scene? They've positioned him like that. Skin is pulled so taut that I think if you were to take just a razor and just touch it, it would open. They would just pull you to where just your joints would, they would be cracking and breaking around this thing so that they can get those lashes. And keep in mind, this thing's got maybe bits of glass, definitely metal and bone on the end of it. So every strike is just, it's not just a slap, it's digging and pulling. It's like a bunch of little mini backhoes digging trenches. Every strike, and he's in position. As the minister of torture and sometimes executioner, right? Because a lot of people didn't survive this. As he moved into position, readied himself, Paul glanced over to the supervising centurion and asked him a two-fold question that seemed to stop time. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Paul just looks him in the eyes and says this. We could put it like this. Is it lawful for you to whip a Roman citizen who has not received a fair trial or been found guilty? That's essentially what he's saying. The centurion obviously became alarmed and halted the examination. Hey, hey, hold it. He rushed over to where the tribune was, maybe in his office if he had one, wherever he was standing, and he warned him, what are you about to do for this man is a Roman citizen? Now, Roman law... ...allowed enhanced methods in the examination of slaves and non-Romans... ...but protected people who held Roman citizenship from being flogged. Roman law also stipulated that all Roman citizens were entitled to a fair trial... ...before being bound and or punished... Cicero, the famous first century B.C. Roman philosopher, politician, this guy's got a massive list of things that he did. He was a politician, a philosopher, a lawyer. He declared, to bind a Roman is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. So the stakes were high here. If Paul's words proved to be true, the tribune could face disaster for binding him with chains and then also for threatening him with flogging. The tribune could possibly lose his position and post. He could even go to prison. If the centurion had, had proceeded with the flogging regardless of Paul's warning and then it were found after he were flogged and maybe killed... After the fact, if he'd have proceeded and gone ahead and done it, if it would have been found that Paul was right in his testimony right here, the tribune could have even faced the death penalty for doing such a thing to a Roman citizen. Now, why did Paul drop, hey, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen here. Was it out of sheer convenience? Was it out of fear? No. No. He had already stated that he was ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem back in 2113. Fear had nothing to do with it. It would have with me. I would have looked at that thing dangling and glistening with the sunlight hitting it just right and said, that's for me? Yeah, that's for you. No, it isn't. Let me tell you what you need to hear. Of course, Paul had nothing to say to them beyond what he had already said. Fear had nothing to do with this. Paul wanted to complete his ministry. He knew that he had to get to Rome. He had an encounter with the Lord Jesus where he was told by the Lord Jesus directly, and he had these encounters with the Lord Jesus and dreams and envisions and these things, and he was told, You're going to go to Jerusalem and then you're going to go to Rome. He knew he had ministry to do. He wanted to complete his ministry. And if a situation became dire and life-threatening, he thought that he might be able to preserve his life and ministry by invoking his rights as a Roman citizen. That's what he did here. You must understand something that we've learned about Paul since we've been studying him in the book of Acts. He was the type of person who used everything available to him when it came to serving Jesus, even his status and rights as a Roman citizen. Everything at his disposal he used for the cause of the kingdom of God. And if he had to use, invoke his right as a Roman citizen to preserve his ministry a little longer, to get to where he knew the Lord had to get him to go to, he would do it. He was an amazing steward of what the Lord Jesus had entrusted him with. Even his citizenship as a Roman Use all things. For my cause, and that's simply what he did here. I've got to get to another point. It's probably gonna be hard to do it without backskin. Seems logical. Might even be harder to do if I'm a corpse. Now look at 27. So the tribune came, so the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. I think the tribune went to Paul with his fingers crossed hoping for an answer that would exonerate him from any wrongdoing and he said are you a Roman citizen hoping that he would say no I'm not okay let the whipping go on I bound him earlier I'm not in any trouble but Paul replied with a simple yes I love the simplicity of it are you yeah The bottom must have fell out for the tribune right here. This was an atomic blast. Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding me? You are? Oh. Right here, he he literally, I mean, he probably thought to himself, I'm ruined. And I, I have no doubt that right at this point where Paul says, yes, I am, that he became an embarrassment to his outfit. This was the the guy that was number two in the community. The only person higher than him in the area was the governor. And the governor was off probably at his governor's mansion in Caesarea. This guy was the, the, the second highest ranking authority, Roman authority, in this area. And right here, he became an embarrassment to his outfit. Why? Because he had not followed protocol. One of the tribune's primary responsibilities was to protect Roman citizens wherever he may be, wherever they might be. And I'll tell you, there weren't a lot of them in this area. This is Jerusalem. But there were some there, and his primary objective was to enforce Roman law and to protect Roman citizens above all else at the expense of the Jews all the time. And he had clearly not done that here, had he? You see, the tribune was a reactionary type of person. When the temple courts exploded, he reacted. Ah! By rushing down and immediately seizing Paul and binding him with two chains before asking any questions or doing an investigation. He let the disturbance determine his response. He let the crowd direct him. And because of that, he broke his own law. He got himself into trouble and he became an embarrassment to his men. And how often, how often do I, how often do you react to a situation and then regret it because you didn't take the time to think it through. You did not respond correctly, and you brought more trouble upon yourself or others. That's what reactionary people do, and I am the chief of them. I am their El presidente. Oh, this happened? Rah! Afterwards, oh my gosh. Does anyone call the fire department? I just took it to a seven alarm. How many times have you said to yourself, I wish I would have thought that through before I acted? You see, the Tribune's reactionary mentality and attitude and reaction to this whole situation just caused him great, great, grievous trouble. Career-threatening trouble I mean, he went and first thing he did was bound Paul without asking, who are you? What's going on? Removing him from the situation and questioning him, not interrogating him. You can't just begin with an interrogation. It doesn't matter what's happening out there or who's saying what or who's doing what. Deal with that individual. Find out what's happening. Get the details. You don't know who you're dealing with. For crying out loud, it says in Hebrews, we might be entertaining an angel. Something to ponder, something to consider. Look at verse 28. The tribune answered. He asked Paul a question. Paul said, yes, that's it. He didn't give him a description. He said, yes. And the tribune answered. I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. Ha! (laughs) The tribune responded to Paul's answer with a strange... Weird answer of his own, right? He told Paul about how he had purchased his citizenship for a large sum of money. Why did he say this? What was he trying to do here? Why, why is he, somebody says, yes, I'm a Roman citizen. All of a sudden say, well, I paid for mine and I paid a fortune for it. What is that? Instead of, oh my gosh, I'm so Sorry. Well, there are at least three explanations as to what he was trying to get to here and what he was trying to do. Some say he was mocking Paul in an effort to humiliate him and downplay the severity of his own crime against him. It was as if he said, I forked out big bucks for my citizenship, pal. How did a peasant like you obtain it? I don't think this view is accurate because I don't believe the Tribune was that stupid. You don't mock one who can grenade you. You don't mock someone you just annihilated. (laughs) You know. Oh, you kiss their ear. You shower them with pleasantries and sweet talk. Why? In an effort to minimize the damage and threat. Right? Why would you mock somebody that can destroy you? When children play and One gets hurt. The one who isn't crying says, come on, I didn't hit you that hard. You're going to be okay. Stop crying. Why do they do this? Because they don't want their parents to hear your little brother crying. Why? Because it's going to get your butt whipped. That's how you respond in these situations. Hey, you know, it's really not that bad, pal. You don't go, I'm glad it hurt. You're a sissy lala. Now the reason why a brother starts talking his younger brother or older brother out of crying really loud is because he wants to avoid detection. He doesn't want to get blasted. Only a doofus brother would say, good, I'm glad it hurt your sissy Lala. And this happens because there are some doofus brothers out there, not in my house, because I hear my children all the time saying, come on Ian, stop crying. Or calling... You're going to be okay, Ryan. We can reattach your arm. <laughs> I hear it all the time. There's constant negotiations. We ought to put my kids up against ISIS. They could negotiate anything with those guys. We'd kill you. No, you don't understand. Next thing you know, they'd be laying down. Now I tell you one thing. it's true about our household. And we don't have doofus kids because they're constantly trying to negotiate with one another. When one is screaming, the other one is working the magic. I have $10. I will give you $10. They're doing everything they can to avoid detection. Not so much as from me because I have a really slow fuse. But if that woman sitting over there that I'm yoked to hears them, she goes through a freaking wall. And if it's the baby, in! And she goes in there and just starts pulling people. She's removing cloaks. She's flinging dust and dropping elbows. The other night I was, I was wrestling with my middle son and I, I was getting the upper hand. It felt good. Because he can kick my butt now. And I was getting him. Next thing you know, I'm getting pounded on the back and I look back and it's her. Get off my baby. He was on me first. It doesn't matter. You have a beard. You know, or whatever. You you feel me? Old bearded one back there. Does it make sense that he was mocking him here? I don't know where these guys come up with these ideas. They don't really understand human nature. It's in a commentary, right? Oh, he was mocking him. He was trying to downplay it, make make him feel more humiliated than he already was. He just got beat up by all these people. It doesn't make any sense to me. Why would the Tribune? Was he like a doofus brother who was trying to egg Paul on? No, he was smarter than that. Another explanation, some say that he was, uh, that this was the tribune's way of getting at the details of Paul's citizenship. A sort of, I'll tell you about my citizenship if you tell me about your citizenship kind of thing playing out here. It's doubtful that the tribune would have stopped the flogging, or the centurion would, without looking further into Paul's background We're just going to accept his word as yes? Okay, we're good. Now, anyone could claim Roman citizenship, and people often did when they were facing flogging. By the way, I'm a Roman citizen. You're a black man. You're from Ethiopia. Are you really a Roman citizen? I mean, people would come up with anything to avoid the flogging by this this instrument. Checking their background was essential. Paul would have also, been required to produce documentation. The ancient historian Suetonius recorded that Roman citizens carried with them a document that showed their citizenship. They re- literally referred to it as their diploma. They carried around their diploma with them. Hey, Grace M. Davis, hi. No, man, class of Rome. They referred to it as their diploma and they carried it, rolled up in a little wooden tube, a small wooden tube that was sealed on one end and had a removable cap on the other. And when an official asked for their documentation, if they were a Roman citizen, they would remove it from the tube, roll it out, hand it to him, and he would take a look at it. And then he would prove, they would prove that what they're saying is accurate. So I think that's probably part of what's playing out here. He wanted to get to the bottom of his citizenship. He asked, he didn't really ask a question, he gave him an answer. Well, I had to pay for mine, and the inference is, how did you get yours? Prove it. And some say he was trying to bait Paul into revealing how he had received his citizenship so that he could figure out which one had been a citizen longer. If the tribune had been a citizen longer... Then he would have had more pull and power than Paul, and that could help his defense if Paul filed charges against him. That makes a little bit of sense there too, right? I think it's a combination of two and three. I don't think it was a mocking issue. Two questions arise here though. Why did the tribune, the Roman tribune, have to purchase his Roman citizenship? And how did he do it? Well, we'll deal with the why first and the how second. The why, the tribune's name was Claudius, Lysias, and that name tells us that he was Greek. He was born Greek. He was not born as a Roman. There was a difference. Greeks were not automatically given Roman citizenship. If a Greek person like Claudius Lysias desired citizenship, he had to appeal to Caesar because Caesar was the only one who could grant it. And so why? Why? because he wasn't born as a Roman citizen and if he wanted to acquire that, he had to go through a process and it was very, very difficult to get. The how. Roman citizenship was not normally for sale. Okay, it says that he purchased it for a large sum, but it was not typically for sale. You could not purchase it under most emperors. However, during A.D. 41-54, to 54, Rome was led by an exceedingly money-hungry and corrupt emperor called Claudius. I wonder if this guy changed his name, just to honor this guy. The emperor was Claudius. Workers in Claudius's administration in Rome would accept bribes from people who desired citizenship. They would charge them a high fee and then enter their names on the emperor's list. The emperor would take his little cut and then sign off on them one by one. Cash for citizenship. That is what Claudius Lysias did. And it said that it cost him a large sum of money, which means that he probably came from a wealthy family, maybe Greek aristocrats, maybe some form of royalty. We don't know. But you you had to have big bucks to do this. This was not ninety five. the ShamWow on TV. This was big bucks, thousands and thousands of dollars, maybe a fortune. But Paul, <laughs> you know, whatever he was positioning here, if he was trying to figure out who's inferior, maybe I've been a, a citizen longer than Paul, and that'll give me some kind of poll here or something like that. But Paul pretty much toasted his bread. He blew him out of the water. He replied, but I have been a citizen Since birth. Paul had been a Roman citizen longer than the tribune. And he didn't have to buy it. He had become a citizen through the best possible way. Which was through birth. Paul's great grandfather or grandfather may have originally obtained it. And then passed it down. Or maybe his father obtained it. And passed it down to him. We have no idea how he got it. But he had been a citizen from birth, which meant the whole idea of I'm superior to you because I've been a citizen longer did not work at all because Paul had been one since birth. Everything the tribune is trying at this point is falling apart. 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. Get away from him! And the tribune was also afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him when the details some of those small details I'm a Roman citizen he probably proved it through his diploma and these things when those details about Paul's citizenship came out the interrogators were struck with fear and immediately withdrew from him faster than Jews away from a leper get away from this dude Jimmy get your hands off him what are you doing don't touch that guy they just, pff, they just fled from him, ran from him. I can't believe I touched him. And it also says that the tribune was afraid, right? It says, and the tribune was also afraid. And that's how we know that they fled from him, withdrew, because they were afraid. Everyone around Paul was afraid. Afraid is phobeo in Greek. And it means to become stricken with dread because of impending misfortune it's the idea of being afraid of what could happen to me in the future i could lose something i could go to jail i could do these sorts of things that's what it means here the tribune was convinced that his mistreatment of paul was going to cost him very dearly in the future And Luke gives the reason for the tribune's fear, right? We've already nailed it. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. As I said earlier, this was a serious offense. You could not jump to a conclusion and bind up with chains a Roman citizen. You had to talk. I mean, and that just goes for every person that you'd interact with if you were some sort of police officer or something. You'd have to find out who they are and what's going on before you start throwing handcuffs on people and before you start taking action. You could not do these things to a Roman citizen. They had special rights. Now, to slaves and, you know, Jews and others, it didn't matter. You could do whatever you want with them. Now, look at verse 30. Verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he's speaking about Paul, he bound him, and, or he unbound him, pardon me, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Okay, so the tribune still had no idea about what Paul had done to the Jews. He, he still could not, he could not figure it out. He knew they were upset with him. He knew he was a Roman citizen, but he could not get to the bottom of what was going on. He was perplexed at this point. I can't figure out. You're saying one thing, they're saying another. He figured maybe the Jewish high court, because he knew Paul was not only a Roman citizen but also a Jew, he figured that maybe the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, could get to the bottom of it. He couldn't get to the bottom of it through scourging, right? That would certainly secure his imprisonment. And so he figures I'll take him over to the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, and and, and we'll see if they can get to the bottom of what's going on. And it says he brought him to them the next day. In verse 29, back a little bit, it says the tribune was afraid because he had bound Paul. But in verse 30, it says he didn't unbind Paul until the next day. What the heck's going on here? If you're afraid because you've broken a Roman law and bound somebody, do you leave them in chains for 24 hours or do you unbind them? You notice that there? You see that little nuance? He didn't unbind him until the next day. Apparently, he wasn't that scared. You would think that he would have removed Paul's chains right after finding out he was a Roman citizen. Well, that's not at all what happened. He left him in chains all night. I suspect he may have been more afraid of what the Jews would do if Paul was free to roam about. That could lead to more rioting and violence, which would reflect negatively on his leadership. We just don't know why he did that. So the Tribune Summoned the Sanhedrin and commanded that they prepare for a trial, right? That's what's happening here. I'm going to put somebody before you and you're going to get to the bottom of what's going on with this dude. Desiring, to, uh, not, uh, desiring not to further incriminate himself, he unbound Paul prior to walking him to the hall of hewn stones where the Sanhedrin convened. That's what's happening here. I've got to walk him over there as a Roman citizen, as a free man. But as long as he's in the jail cell, I'll keep him in chains. When I put him out in front of the public, when he's walking all the way to that spot, he's got to be walking with his arms swinging. He didn't want to further incriminate himself by showing that he had bound a Roman citizen. And then lastly, it says, when they arrived there, they placed, the tribune placed Paul before them. Now next week, Lord willing, we will... Examine Paul's second defense, first defense before the Jews in the outer court, second defense before the Sanhedrin, okay? Now here's a great question. Because over the last couple of years, God has been making me into an investigator of scripture with the intent of finding Jesus in every passage that I read. Jesus is not mentioned by name once in this text, in those verses. Right? So the question is how does this text point to Jesus? Does it point to Jesus? Because Jesus is the point to Scripture. Does it point to Him? Listen to these parallels, they are absolutely stunning. Now just pay close attention because this is what we're going to wrap up with. Listen to these parallels. We want to see Jesus in this text, and he's not mentioned by name, and it also doesn't appear that Paul's pointing to him. He did in the last section when he testified, he met the righteous one, Jesus, on the Damascus road. There is a pointing to Jesus. Listen to these parallels. Literally, they're stunning. The Jews listen to Paul up to a point, verse 22. The Jews listen to Jesus up to a point, Matthew 26, 64 to 65. Paul said some things, and there was something that he said that caused an explosion. The same thing happened with Jesus. The Jews cried out for Paul's death, right? Verse 22. The Jews cried out for Jesus' death. Matthew 27 22. Mark 15 13, Luke 23 21, John 19 15. Crucify him! What a parallel. The Jews protested. The Jews protested Paul visually by throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. Verse twenty-three, right? The Jews, uh, the Jewish high priest—pardon me—the Jewish high priest protested Jesus visually by tearing his vestments. Matthew twenty-six sixty-five. Are you the Son of God? It is indeed, ha. Huh? How oh, you have stated Blasphemy. Paul was brought to Gabatha to be flogged with a cat of nine tails. Verse 24. Jesus was brought to Gabatha to be flogged with a cat of nine tails. Matthew twenty seven twenty six, Mark fifteen, fifteen, John nineteen one. Paul was asked. Can they just keep going? Paul was asked about his citizenship by a Roman official, verse twenty-seven. Jesus was asked about his citizenship by a Roman official, John eighteen thirty-three to thirty-six. Isn't this amazing? My kingdom is not of this world. Remember that. Claudius Lysias was unable to figure out why the Jews wanted Paul to die, so he turned him over to the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, right? Verse 30. Pontius Pilate was unable to figure out why the Jews wanted Jesus to die, so he turned him over to the Jewish political leader, King Herod Antipas. Luke 23, verse 4 through 7. Look at these parallels. Amazing. Now there is a huge, huge difference between Paul and Jesus. Paul evaded flogging and possible death here, but Jesus faced those things. Not only did he face those things, but he did not evade them. And I am so thankful for that. Aren't you? I'm so thankful that Jesus didn't invoke his rights as a citizen of heaven, as the Lord of heaven, and call upon 12 legions of angels to rescue him. I'm so thankful that Jesus laid down his rights and life for the church I'm so thankful that he went all the way to the cross, all the way to the tomb, that he rose from the grave three days later. If he hadn't have done those things, there would be no way for sinners to evade the wrath of God. Impossible. You see, this passage points to Jesus through the example of Paul. And you need to remember that. And I need to remember that. Remember that Jesus is and always will be the main point of all scripture. And that scripture always points to him somehow. Now let's spend some time during communion Not only confessing our sins, but also thanking and praising Jesus for what he did. Paul didn't receive stripes at that moment, but Jesus did and it's by his stripes we are healed. It's through his bloody sacrifice, him going all the way through. You talk about a person in history ever having more rights than Jesus, none of them did. No one ever has. And yet he did not invoke those things. Willfully laid down his life for his sheep. Shouldn't we weep and rejoice and praise Christ for what he did? You know, that's what Paul wants us to do. Also, give thanks and praise to the Father for developing and ordaining the plan of salvation. And give thanks and praise to the Holy Spirit for empowering us to repent and believe it. Amen? Thank you, Lord, that uh, this text does point to you, or at least that we were able to figure that out. <laughs> And I'm thankful that that it doesn't boil down to or end with Paul, whom I think is probably one of the greatest Christians to ever live, but he's not our Savior. He was a good man. Jesus was a better man. Jesus is the better Paul. He's the better Moses, the better Paul, the better Noah, the better David. He is the better of all it's only by his work, his completion, his following through and suffering bitterly, being tortured for us, he became our, our only offering to God that could save us. It's only by his work that we'd have any hope at all. And I'm thankful for Christ today. I'm thankful that he lived perfect righteousness for me because that's impossible for me. I'm thankful that he died on a cross for my sins, that he was buried for me, that he rose in victory over death, Satan, and hell for me, that he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell those of faith, to help us to live for God each day, to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ each moment. We have so much to be thankful for this morning. Wow, what a friend we have in Jesus. What a savior we have with Jesus. He is marvelous. Thank you, Father, for sending him. Thank you, Father, for sending the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the truth to save us, to redeem us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. May we remember what the elements represent, the finished work of Christ, the broken body, his broken body for us, his shed blood for the remission, removal of our sin. It's a completed work. We can walk out of this room today refreshed by his work, sustained by his work, obedient because of his work. What a marvelous thing he has done indeed. May we confess our sin and remember Christ during this time. May we remember that this moment of communion is for your church and for your people. Your bride It's not for those who have yet to repent and believe in Jesus. May your church come forward and in all joy spend time with you now, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your matchless mighty name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.